0: Hiya, misfits. This is Kate.
1: And this is Matt.
0: Welcome to Horrorwood. back
1: i was doing the theme music there but um, i
0: i caught on to that
1: yeah you don't i don't have to sing it because you you can play it and you yeah, just did
0: i just did <laughs> matt is back and he whoa, whoa. is the birthday boy having a birthday tomorrow happy birthday tomorrow well at when this airs it'll be yesterday well, so it'll be yesterday so so it's just an all-encompassing birthday weekend for you
1: i'm i'm living the dream we're going we're gonna to have <laughs> oysters and steak later. I'm excited. That,
0: that you're making. because that I'm you're, making. You're my personal <laughs> chef. I should Correct. be making it for you, but Correct. oh well.
1: But I'm excited. <sighs> I'm excited to make them.
0: Great. I'm excited about this episode.
1: I know nothing about this episode. You have kept it a secret. I know zero things about it. I'm excited yeah. to go on the journey.
0: I will say, so this one's a little different from what I usually do, and that's mainly because um, I needed something slightly lighter, even though this isn't because there is tragedy involved, but Mm -hmm. I'm working on the Patreon episode, which I've told you about, and Matt, and it's like a real downer and a depressing one, and I've already had two people turn me down that I've asked to co-host, so...
1: Because of the content?
0: Because of the content, yeah. Oh,
1: dang. Dang.
0: And I needed uh, I needed a break from that. So this is a slightly different um, episode. It's also probably going to be a lot shorter, like a little Misfit Mini. I'm just going to like, bam, throw the info at you and just like let you go on your way.
1: I'm, I dig it. I dig it. I'm in.
0: Before I get into it, though, I wanted to say, so Spotify is doing this new thing. So all of our listeners on Spotify, um, they now do where you could have questions or polls in your show notes and they put them up automatically. Um, And it's super fun. So I've gone through some of the old episodes and added questions or polls or both. So like in last week's episode, we did the Viper room and I added a question of what you think happened to Anthony Fox. And then I think I added a poll on our Monica Burgos episode um, where Bruce Beresford Redmond It's a did he or didn't he thing. So like if you go through those, those are kind of fun. Um, Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. So I wanted to throw that in before I forgot about it.
1: Solving crimes. Solving crimes.
0: Solving (laughs) crimes left and right. That's what we're here for. Um, Wake up.
1: Wake up. Solve crimes.
0: Wake up. Solve crime. Drink coffee. Solve more crime. Uh, Here we go. In 1944, we're going back Michael Curtis accepted the Oscar for Best Director for the film Casablanca. I still haven't seen that, and I'm a little embarrassed to admit that.
1: I've seen it; it's great. You have it really? It's a really exceptional movie. Yeah,
0: I would have liked to have seen that with you, boyfriend. But um, well,
1: I saw it it before I met you. So okay,
0: well, can't blame you for that. (laughs) Prior to his win for Casablanca, he'd been nominated for an Academy Award multiple times for other films, and the film Sons of Liberty, which he directed, won the Oscar for Best Short Subject in 1939. The category of Best Short Subject is now referred to as Best Live Action Short Film. So, same thing. But, before Michael was an Oscar-winning director, he was, um, a murderer? Of what sorts. The? Yeah. Michael Curtis was born Commoner Mano in Budapest in 1886. This was back when Austria and Hungary were one empire. In 1905, he changed his name to Kurtis Mihali I hope I'm saying that right, but I'm probably saying it wrong. To assimilate to the Hungarian national identity. There they say their last name first. So they would say Curtis Mihali here in America. We'd say Mihali Curtis." Michael, I'm gonna I'm gonna refer to him as Michael at this from this point on, but Michael fell in love with theater as a kid. He used to put on plays with his friends in the cellar of his family's home, like we all did. Um, we didn't have a <laughs> cellar, we had a basement, but
1: gather round, let's go down to the <laughs> cellar and put on a skit.
0: Yes. Once he graduated from college, he began working as an actor in a traveling theater company, which led to a job as a mime in a circus for a while before he joined with another traveling theater group. They traveled all throughout Europe and would perform in the native language So that was a typo and I wrote in the naive language of whatever country, (laughs) but no, it's just the native language of whatever country they were in. So Michael eventually learned five languages because they were in France, Italy, Germany, Hungary. They were all over Europe beginning in 1912. His work in the theater led to him directing films in Hungary, some of which he acted in as well. The following year in 1913, Michael went to Denmark to study at the Nordisk Film Studio, working as both actor and assistant director. But then a few months later, World War I began. Michael was forced to put his career on hold, returning to Hungary, where he served in the Army. He served for a year, but ended up getting injured. So once he left the Army, he made some fundraising films for the Red Cross in Hungary. Okay. Okay. I thought you were going to say no, something no, that's, else.
1: No, I'm, I'm <laughs> that's good to know. You, du- you duly noted. This, like you were like,
0: <gasps> and then you just no. stared at me. <laughs>
1: yeah, no, great, great news. Great to know. <laughs> okay.
0: Shortly after that, in 1917, he became the director of production at Phoenix Films, which was the leading studio in Budapest. In just that year alone, he directed 13 films. Of course, it wasn't like it is now where you shoot a movie for months and then there's editing. It takes a year for it to come out. Back then, it was just like, bam, bam, bam. And this was the silent film era. So those films could be made fairly quickly. And you didn't have a bunch of takes with actors forgetting lines or anything like that because it was silent. Michael was becoming a pretty big deal in Hungary. But when the war ended, the communist government briefly took over the film industry there. So Michael was like well, this sucks, I'm a piece peace out and go to Vienna so I can keep yeah. doing my thing and making movies. That's fun. And it was in Vienna that Michael learned the ropes when it came to directing big, epic films with huge casts. And by huge, I mean thousands. He learned quick pacing, complicated plots, so he, he really got a film education while in Vienna. The two films considered his most important during this time were Big Biblical Epics, the first was Sodom and Gomorrah in nineteen twenty two. And the second was in nineteen twenty-four, a film called Die Sklaven Königen, which in the United States was titled Moon of Israel. Don't laugh at me. I worked really hard on that pronunciation. <laughs> I'm not I look- laughing. <laughs> I looked it up.
1: I heard I, it was, Frankie was barking.
0: Sure. No, she wasn't. You're <laughs> such a liar. Yeah, she is. She's totally barking right now. Huh. I don't hear it. Listeners, okay. do you hear okay. a dog barking? No.
1: Fair. continue please uh sidebar respect for uh managing those kind of productions i have not managed that kind of a, a production before and dear lord thinking about hundreds and hundreds of actors
0: thousands wow thousands do you want to tell people what you do since you kind of alluded to it
1: so i'm a director i work primarily in commercials these days but i've directed a lot of theater Uh, I've directed a little bit of TV and, uh, yeah, the thought of thousands of actors, uh, wrangling that kind of number. Um, Crazy. I can feel the, I can feel the ulcer forming.
0: So the film that Matt laughed at me when I pronounced, Di Sklaven Kunigen, as I said, was titled Moon of Israel in the U.S. And Moon of Israel was about the exodus or the liberation of Israelites from slavery in Egypt. The movie had 5,000 people in its cast. Many of these were extras or background performers. Um, It involved a love story between an Israeli woman and an Egyptian prince. Michael's trademark, if you will, became making these big movies that paired a romantic drama with a huge historical event. It was kind of his thing. Uh After seeing Moon of Israel, Jack and Harry Warner as in the Warner Brothers, were super impressed with Michael as a director. Jack Warner said, quote, I was laid in the aisles by Curtis's camera work, by shots and angles that were pure genius. So Jack was like, hey, Michael, my brother and I love your work. We've got this new studio in Hollywood called Warner Brothers, and we'd like you to come be a director there. And Michael was like, cool beans. I'm a super prolific director in Europe. Let me go conquer Hollywood. Um, Unfortunately, he did leave behind a son and a daughter. He just kind of pieced out on them. So that's not cool. But in the summer of 1926, Curtis Mihaly moved to the United States and changed his name to the Anglicized Michael Curtis. Warner Brothers had big plans for Michael. They wanted to compete with studios that had bigger budgets, and they wanted to create something comparable to epic films like Cecil B. DeMille's *The Ten Commandments* that had come out in 1923. Yeah. And I was going
1: to say, was there a tie into that? Because that was that was huge. That, uh, was, that was huge, massive Hollywood event.
0: And studio execs were shitting their pants when that came out because they were like, "Fuck, I want to make <laughs> something that's even better than that." But despite Michael's resume, the Warners wanted to try him out with smaller projects, like all silent films, just to get his feet wet and get him some experience in Hollywood. Because when he arrived, he spoke no English. Like he, he had a lot under his belt, but he was pretty green when it came to the film industry here in the United States. He originally signed on to direct six or seven pictures in a year, which to think of doing that now seems wild.
1: Yeah, wild. Wild. I mean, you're, you're averaging, it's like two or three year commitment to direct a film. I mean, from, from today, yeah. yeah, Pre-production through post-production. I mean, that's, that's kind of average.
0: So six or seven movies in a year, all the while trying to learn English. And he's also researching all these films because they're all set in places in the U.S. that he's never been. So he was working at a really fast pace because they're just cranking these films out one right after the other. Dolores Costello, who was nicknamed the goddess of the silent screen, she was the it girl at Warner Brothers. She was kind of like the Mary Pickford of United Artists, but for Warner Brothers. She starred in several of the films Michael directed. Fun fact, she's also the grandmother of Drew Barrymore.
1: Well, how about that?
0: How about it? After proving himself to Warner Brothers that their films were in capable hands, the studio was ready to give him what was certainly their biggest project to date. It was a part talkie, so part of it was silent and part of it had sound. Other studios were already experimenting with sound and Warner Brothers was trying to keep up. The film was called Noah's Ark and starred the studio's golden girl Dolores Costello, it was written by Daryl Zanuck, who would later go on to co-found 20th Century Fox. And if you've listened to our Marilyn Monroe episodes, you might remember that Daryl Zanuck is the man who famously fired Marilyn from Fox because he didn't think she was photogenic. So that's just to give you an idea of who Daryl Zanuck is going into this.
1: Got it. Got it. I remember that from the Marilyn episode.
0: Yeah. Oh, you listened. Oh, that's nice.
1: Uh, duh.
0: <laughs> Thanks for listening.
1: you're the worst
0: (laughs) (laughs) the movie noah's ark paired a world war romance with the biblical flood where noah had to build the ark it showed the parallels of the two stories sounds like a stretch okay but this is what michael curtis was known for taking a romance and pairing it with a historical event this was right in his wheelhouse Okay, I did hear Frankie bark on that time.
1: (laughs) See, she's going nuts right now. I don't know what's happening outside. She's
0: mad because neither of us (laughs) are with her.
1: She's super mad.
0: This was the first epic film Warner Brothers had attempted. It was a big deal because they were trying to compete with other studios and they had been grooming Michael for this very film, trying him out on smaller projects to make sure he was ready for this. So they already had this film in mind before Michael even came to the U.S., Daryl Zanuck really wanted to top Cecil B. DeMille's The Ten Commandments because that had been such a huge success. And he was like, I need to show everyone that I'm better and I'm going to write a motherfucking masterpiece.
1: <laughs> Bringing up <out> the swears.
0: <laughs> oh, we do swear on this podcast. I hope you're OK with that, Matthew. Uh, OK. Can you can you survive?
1: <laughs> I'll, I'll make it.
0: You'll fucking make it. The movie was billed as, quote, the spectacle of the ages. So they're really really going all out on this one. It involved huge catastrophic scenes, one where everyone is on a train riding across a bridge and then lightning strikes the bridge, causing it to collapse, sending the train crashing into the ravine below. And then another massive scene is the biblical flood that the title references in which God sends... The storm of all storms, the mother storm, to basically wipe out the planet. The train wreck scene was filmed using models and miniatures. People weren't actually on a train that was sent crashing into a ravine.
1: One would hope. One would hope. Yeah.
0: Could you imagine if, if the director was just like, okay, everybody, hold on?
1: <laughs> we think this will work.
0: <laughs> we'll see. It'd be crazy. Just like it would be crazy if they decided to actually flood the set while actors were on it rather than use models and miniatures. But that's exactly what they did. Oh, dang. Daryl Zanuck and Michael Curtis wanted the flood to look as authentic as possible and thought it would be a great idea to create a real flood with real people in the scene. So when they went over the plan with cameraman Hal Moore to show him how the scene would be shot, Hal objected, stating it was too dangerous. Hal said to Michael, quote, what are you going to do about the extras? There were upwards of 7,500 extras working on the film. Whoa. But on the poster, it says it's a cast of 10,000. Either way, it's a lot of people you have to consider. But when Hal asked Michael about them, Michael allegedly shrugged and replied, quote, they're going to have to take their chances. Hal was deeply concerned and went to the studio executives and said, you have trained stuntmen and they'll know what to expect and they'll know how to prepare for it, but extras are not going to know what's coming. Yeah. A lot of people who sign up to be an extra are just trying to make a paycheck or they're interested in the movie business and want to be a part of it, or they're trying to get their start in the industry. No one who signs up to be an extra does it because they're thinking, you know, I think I'd like to risk my life today. (laughs) Hal voiced his concerns that many of the extras would be hurt, but was overruled. So he quit the film altogether and walked off set. He was like, If you're going to put thousands of people in jeopardy, I don't want to be around for that. I'm going to just be over here doing anything else. Hal was replaced by cameraman Barney McGill, who unfortunately did not share Hal's concerns. The filming went ahead as planned. And when it came time to shoot the flood scene, 600,000 gallons of freezing cold water came pouring down on the unsuspecting actors and crew.
1: They were given
0: no warning of just how severe it was going to be. The huge torrents tossed them around, slamming them into the sets, which were made of concrete And in the film, you can see people literally fighting for their lives. They're just like scrambling, trying to get out of this. Tragically, three of the extras drowned. One man's leg was so badly injured that it had to be amputated, and several others suffered broken limbs and other serious injuries. Gin Williams, who played Al, sustained two broken ribs, George O'Brien, who was Dolores' co-star, lost several of his toenails because the, the water was like ice. It was so cold. Oh,
1: my Lord.
0: And Dolores Costello contracted pneumonia, a very serious case of pneumonia, and also came close to drowning. This is just a side note. One of the extras who did survive was a young Marion Morrison, who you might know better as John Wayne. In the book, The Movie Doctors by Simon Mayo and Mark Kermode, or Kermode, I think is how it's pronounced, they refer to the injuries and deaths caused by this flood scene as, quote, popular folklore. However, 35 ambulances were called to set to treat the wounded after the filming of that scene, and Dolores Costello, in an interview later, teared up when she talked about the human cost of that movie. She described the filming as horrific, referring to it as quote mud, blood, and flood so I don't think it's just folklore. it sounds like it was really fucking tragic also Frankie is going nuts. Frankie's
1: going nuts right now. I'm not sure what's happening i
0: I hope she's okay i hope I- if everyone can hear that we're sorry
1: yeah that i mean that This is horrifying. Also, it sounds like this probably directly led to the rise of unions, especially to trade unions.
0: Well, you're not far off. So a year later, uh, I have to find it because it's a little further down in my notes. So yes, a year later, stunt safety regulations were put into place as a result of the deaths and injuries from that movie. But as we all know, even with regulations in place, Tragic accidents have continued to occur on set, and we're going to cover more of those down the road for sure. Today, if three people died on a movie, and several others were injured, and three of the lead actors didn't make it out unscathed either, and 35 ambulances had to be called to set, I'm pretty sure that movie would get shut down.
1: Yeah, yeah. You would not be finishing that movie.
0: No, but... Not Noah's Ark. That was not the case. The studio, along with Michael Curtis, were determined to make, quote, the greatest movie ever made, The Spectacle of the Ages. Unfortunately, when the movie premiered, it received a lackluster response at best. Mordaunt Hall from The New York Times said it was a, quote, cumbersome production and a great test of patience.
1: That's that's a great line. (laughs) That is a great test of patience. (laughs) I'm going to steal that. That's amazing. Uh, You're going to use it in
0: reference to me now. I can tell. (laughs) You're like, oh, Kate, you are a great test of patience. Well, duly noted. Easy. The New York Post said it was, quote, a solid bore. And Alva Johnson from The New Yorker called it, quote, the worst movie ever made. After the poor response from its premiere... Warner Brothers pulled the film and revised it, cutting out almost a half hour from the runtime before re-releasing it. It originally was, I think, two hours and 15 minutes long, and they took out almost a half hour. Because of the news coverage of the deaths and injuries that took place while filming, the general public were very interested in seeing this film. So it actually did pretty decent at the box office once it was re-released, which, like, is kind of shitty, because of why they were going but like yeah. that's also human nature um yeah. it's just it's wild so as i said the following year the regulations were put into place specifically to protect stunt performers um but just safety regulations in general on set and those would improve over time because they weren't necessarily enforced until decades later, when another huge tragedy happened, which I'm going to cover, so I'm not going to talk about it right now. Unfortunately, the two men most responsible for the tragic events that happened on that set, Michael Curtis and Daryl Zanuck, would walk away without ever being held accountable for the lives lost and injuries injuries suffered. Excuse me. In fact, they would go on to have illustrious careers. Daryl Zanuck would co-found 20th Century Fox, as I mentioned before, later winning an Oscar as a producer for All About Eve. And Michael Curtis would win an Oscar for Casablanca. And he'd direct a little-known movie you might have seen during the holidays called White Christmas. Unfortunately, we don't know the names of those that died or were injured while filming Noah's Ark, but I hope they are all winning Oscars in the afterlife. That is all we can hope for. (sighs)
1: How horrible. How horrible to show up to set, think you're yep. going to be part of a cool scene, and then to have 600,000 gallons of water coming at you. You have no, no idea.
0: Warning. And it's freezing cold. It is freezing cold. I'm going to post a clip. It's a very short clip of the scene. It is terrifying. It, because people are literally like, what the fuck just yeah. happened? Um. Yeah. And they didn't know. The crew didn't know. I mean, they were like, OK, yes, yeah, some water's going to come down. Even the actors. I mean, no one was protected. And they because they wanted it to be, quote unquote, authentic, which is like so fucking stupid. Because the train wreck, that was fine. They used models and no one was injured. No one was even in the line of harm. It was fine. But no, for a flood, let's get six hundred thousand gallons of freezing cold water. It's the equivalent of an Olympic-sized swimming pool, or fifteen thousand tons. Wow! Just being poured down on you.
1: Yeah. No, thank you. Uh, yeah. What a terrifying event.
0: Yeah, and that—that's the conclusion of Noah's <laughs> Ark. It. Almost did wipe out the planet.
1: Wow. This is kind of related, but uh, uh, a little different. I, w- I went on the Paramount lot tour a few years ago. Mm-hmm. and I think I've done ha- that tour. They have a big parking lot in the middle of the complex. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting about the parking lot is that there are kind of concrete berms all around it. And uh, you know, essentially making like a big tub. And mm. the tour guide was like, this is where they shoot a lot of open ocean moments, uh, mm. including the moment where the Red Sea is parted in the Ten Commandments.
0: Oh, uh, yeah.
1: Where they they can flood this parking lot and fill it with water. Uh, and I think they filmed portions of Castaway there as well. Mm. But um, that's the way it should be done. <laughs> yeah. Where you're in control of those elements. And you're not putting people in harm's way.
0: It's interesting you say that because if Ten Commandments did use that, you would think that Warner Brothers Studios and other studios would take note and be like, oh, so that's how they did that. Okay, so we don't have to actually flood our own set and all of our set pieces and our actors and crew and risk human lives. One would think. I mean, I'm just spitballing
1: Yeah, it's hard to know what the you know what that scene i haven't seen it so not knowing what that scene is what what sure you know, how they were trying to use that water but my god uh what a horrible tragedy
0: yeah it is oof and sadly it's not the last tragedy in the cinematic world but let us know what you think you can leave it in the comments on instagram facebook or youtube matt this is you
1: uh oh this is my cue this is my cue sorry i'm <laughs> i'm totally messing up Okay, leave me in one more time.
0: Let us know what you think. You can leave it in the comments on Instagram, Facebook, or YouTube.
1: At Horrorwood Podcast.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Or email us at.
1: Horrorwoodpodcast at gmail.com.
0: And if you really love us and you have the means, head on over to our Patreon and become one of our misfit murderinos at.
1: Patreon.com forward slash Horrorwood Podcast.
0: And I promise all you Patronians out there, I do have a new episode going up on the Patreon next week. If I can just get someone to agree to co-host it with me, because it is a rough one. As always, keep it zesty, misfits, and don't do murder. Just don't do it. Don't do it. We should check on Frankie.
1: Yeah, Frankie's going crazy. And
0: we should celebrate your birthday. Yeah. Happy birthday. Thank you. Bye.
1: Bye.